you got a Bible, turn to 1 John. 1 John, we're starting a new series of messages this morning entitled Evidence and Assurance. Evidence and Assurance. And as we start this new series of messages, I want to give you a little bit of a backdrop to this book. Uh, because some things just don't make sense outside of the context in which they're set. And so I'll give you a little backdrop. John, the, 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 the first epistle of John was written by many conservative scholars believe the Apostle John, who also wrote the Gospel of John. Because you see so much of the same language and the same themes that are in the Gospel of John that emerge in John's first epistle there. But the Gospel and the epistle were written with two distinct purposes, or on two different occasions. If you go into the Gospel of John, toward the end of his book, he writes these words in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John says, the reason I've written this gospel account to you, to his readers, is so that you might believe that Jesus is who he indeed claimed to be, the very Son of God, and that by believing on him through faith and trust in him, that you might experience life in him. You might know life, you might know God. But the, the occasion for the first epistle of John is a little bit different. If you go to the end of the first epistle of John, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, John writes these words. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. In other words, the gospel of John is written so that you might believe on Jesus as the Son of God and have life. The, epistle, the first epistle of John is written so that for those who did believe on Jesus, they might know that they are in him and have life in him. Right? That you might believe in Jesus, that you might know that you do really believe in Jesus, that you really are, do have life in him. One is written to bring people to a place of conversion, the other is written to bring people to a place of assurance. And so as we open this, this first epistle of John, we've got to ask the question, like, why would John write a letter to assure his readers of their status with God and their life in Christ? And here's a little bit of the context there in the backdrop of what's going on as scholars kind of reconstruct what was taking place in the church in, when, when John writes this letter. So sometime after the writing of the Gospel of John, there arose a conflict within the church community because some of the members had taken on board beliefs that departed from the witness of the apostles, what the, the Gospel that the apostles had been preaching. And so they, these new beliefs involved a denial that Jesus was the Christ, that he was the Son of God, that he had indeed come in the flesh, that his death was necessary for the forgiveness of sins. And there was a sharp disagreement that arose that led to these people who held positions that departed from the apostles, and their eyewitness testimony led them to depart from the church and to kind of come over here and play in their own sandbox. But the problem was, these people didn't play in their own sandbox, right? They wanted to come back and play in the apostle sandbox as well. And so they sent out itinerant preachers to try and persuade these churches that were still in alignment with the apostles' teaching to leave and follow after their teachings. They were trying to persuade them to come along the path with them. And so this created confusion for many of the early believers of going, we hear this one thing over here and this one thing over here. We don't know, how, we're, we're, we're torn. Do we really know God? Do we really have life? Are we really saved? Are we really walking with God? Do we really know the truth about who God is? And so John writes this first epistle to assure his readers of the truths that they had heard from him and the rest of the apostles 
And so that they might know that they know Jesus. The Jesus the apostles had seen, the Jesus the apostles had touched, the Jesus the apostles had heard, the Jesus the apostles had walked with. And so John writes his first epistle to assure them and give them a certainty of knowledge that they know God. And so for the next several months, we're going to be working our way through this book of 1 John, looking at the evidences that John gives that are intended to provide assurance to his readers of the fact that they have a relationship with Christ. That they know God truly, that they know God rightly. And we're going to see these evidences over and over and over again. There's going to be the evidence of conduct or behavior. There's going to be the evidence of charity or benevolence or love. And there's going to be the evidence of their creed, their doctrines, their beliefs. So what they believe, how they lived, and who and how they loved. Over and over again, John's going to come back to those same themes and continue to drive those home. And my hope is that as we work through this book together, one of two things will happen in our hearts. Either we will be greatly comforted by these truths as God uses them to minister to us and grant us great assurance of the fact that we are in Christ, that God has been gracious to us, that we've come to know God truly and rightly through His Son. And we will be comforted and assured by these truths. Or, on the other hand, if we don't see these evidences in our lives, that we may become conflicted by them. And have to wrestle with, do I know God rightly? Do I know God truly? Am I really in Him? Because listen, any other alternative response to what John says, what it means really is this, you're not really hearing Him. You'll either be comforted or conflicted, but there is no third way. There is no third way. Now before we get to asking and answering this question of how do you know if you know God, we need to start this morning where John starts by asking what does it mean to know God? What does it mean to know God? Now listen, this is, I'm going to talk to you out of one text, not the whole, well, some of the rest of the Bible, but we don't have time to go into the entire, uh, full-on what will we do? But you wouldn't appreciate that. Um, and so what we're going to do is drill down in the, f- the really introduction of 1 John this morning in verses 1 to 4 and ask this question, what does it mean to know God? The text will be on the screen. If you don't have it, uh, you can follow along there. And John begins by writing, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So what does it mean to know God? First off, I want you to know something, church. Knowing God is historical. It is historical. Listen, what John says here about knowing God is rooted in an objective historical realities. See, genuine Christianity, authentic Christianity, does not leave ultimate reality up to the whims and wishes of individuals. It doesn't say you get to choose what ultimate reality looks like for you. 
Authentic, real Christianity, really knowing God, means we don't get to create God into our own image, into our own likeness, but that He forms and fashions us into His and remakes us through the second birth into the image of Christ. See, it's rooted in historical realities. We don't get to create ultimate reality for ourselves. This text and others in the Bible, they contend that genuine Christianity is not just a philosophy, right? It's not just a collection of beliefs. It's not just a worldview. It's not just how we process and understand what's going on around us. Though it is those things, it's much more. It's not just a code of ethical conduct, as if Jesus was some kind of good moral teacher or ethical teacher. He gave us good ethical instruction. While he does, it's more than that. See, what the Bible contends is that Christianity is rooted in the events that stand at the very center or fulcrum of human history. That events that stand at the very center of of, uh, history as it's unfolded throughout the ages. At the center of the Christian faith is this. It's the belief that the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Godhead, was clothed in flesh, he was born of a virgin, he was given the name of Jesus. As we sing every Christmas, clothed in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. That God became man, the very Son of God, was clothed in flesh and became like us. In all ways, except only sin. That's at the very center of the Christian faith and at the very center of human history. See, the apostles contend that this actually happened. That Jesus, the one we know as Jesus, was fully God. That he was, he was the second person of the Godhead. John writes of this, listen to what he says in, in the first three verses. He writes of this eternal word of life. When he says, that which was from the beginning, who was with the Father. And he says that this was made manifest or revealed. It broke into human history. And we have heard, we have seen, and we have touched this eternal word of life. Now to understand what John is saying here, you've got to go back a little bit to the beginning of the gospel according to John that we read earlier in the service. When John says in John 1.1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, he was in the beginning with God. God, that very word that, G, that John is referring to in John 1, 1, if you read further down in John's gospel in John chapter 1, you're going to see he's going to say the word became flesh and he set up a tent in our world. He came to tabernacle among us. He came to dwell among us. That very word came to live and dwell in our midst. And then in 1 John chapter 1, you see him speaking of what he's testifying about is the word of life. The word which is life, that is eternal life, that John is testifying about. So he's talking about none other than the person of Jesus who has broken into human history, that God in flesh has come to live among us. But not only is he fully God, but he's also fully man. He doesn't stop with just saying that Jesus is this fully God who is kind of like a specter or like a ghost like a ghost or like a spirit that just kind of hovered around the, the earth. He says, no, he says he's actually a human being. He was manifested to us. He was revealed to us. We heard what he said. We saw him with our own eyes. We touched his body with our own hands. And I have to imagine that John, as one of the apostles, is not only talking about the incarnate Christ who was born of a virgin, but also the resurrected Christ who was raised from the grave as they sat on the beach with him and ate fish and remembered and recounted the stories of Jesus' resurrection. 
In fact, if you read Paul's accounts elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 15, he's going to say, listen, if you don't believe my testimony about the resurrection, go ask these other 500 people to whom Jesus appeared all at the same time. He says, some of them have fallen asleep, some of them are dead, but many of them are still alive. You don't believe me, go ask them. Listen, people who aren't speaking about historical realities don't say, go ask the other 500 people who saw him. You know what I'm saying? So he's speaking about historical realities. So for those who wish to say, you're like, what, what all does this mean? For those who wish to say that it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you are sincere, they don't understand. They don't understand what John is saying here. They don't understand the objective historical roots of the Christian faith. And listen, for those who would look at the gospel accounts and go, man, I, I've re I, I read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Right, but I'm, I'm still not real sure. Is this, like, how do we know this stuff just didn't get made up? Well, listen, I, I break this quote out every once in a while, because I, I, personally, because I love it, and I think it's super helpful. But C.S. Lewis, I think, does a phenomenal job of articulating this. When he writes about the gospel accounts, listen to what he says. Now, if you don't know who C.S. Lewis was, he was the, 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 a world-renowned literary scholar in England who was an atheist and converted to Christianity. And listen to what he says. I have been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, and myths all my life. I know what they are like. And I know none of them are like this, speaking of the Gospels. Of this, the Gospels, of this text, there are only two possible views, he says. Either it is reportage, eyewitness accounts, recounting what they had seen, heard, touched, and experienced. Or, the other option is some unknown ancient writer, without known predecessors, or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern, novelistic, realistic narrative. What he's saying is this. Either this is eyewitness accounts of what actually took place in history, or someone without a mentor, right, and without anybody who came after them for thousands of years, suddenly anticipated what it would be like to read, right, a, a Tom Clancy novel. Right, modern, realistic his narrative. That's how fiction is written today. That's not how it was written in the ancient world. And Lucy says, those are your two options. And he says, I've been reading this stuff all my life. His words carry weight to them that what we read is actual historical reportage. And there are many who want to dismiss the historical reportage but listen, the reason they dismiss it is not because, not necessarily because there is this whole idea of God fully, Jesus being fully God or Jesus being fully man. But oftentimes they dismiss the historical reportage because they don't want to yield their life to this one who is fully God and fully man. John Piper said it this way. I think he captures it brilliantly. He says, the stumbling block of the incarnation, when God becomes a man, he strips away every pretense of man to be God. Well, I'll stop there. He goes on. Many are willing to believe in Christ if he remains merely a spiritual reality. But when we preach a, the, that Christ has become a particular man in a particular place, issuing particular commands and dying on a particular cross, exposing the particular sins of our particular lives, then the preaching ceases to be acceptable for many. I don't think 
It is so much that the mystery of divine and human natures in one person that causes people to stumble over the doctrine of the incarnation. Rather, the stumbling block, he says, is that if the doctrine is true, every single person in the world must obey this one particular Jewish man. Everything he says is law. Everything he did is perfect. And the particularity of his work and word will flow out in history in the form of a particular inspired book that claims universal authority over every other book that has ever been written. He says, we can no longer do our own thing. We must do what this one Jewish man wants us to do. We can no longer pose as self-sufficient because this one Jewish man says that we are all sick with sin and must come to him for healing. We can no longer depend on our own wisdom to find life because this one Jewish man who lived for 30 obscure years in a little country in the Middle East says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. When God becomes a man, man ceases to be the measure of all things. And this man becomes the measure of all things. This is simply intolerable to the rebellious heart of men and women because in the incarnation, there was a violation of the Bill of Human Rights written by Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. That's why people push back against the historicity of the Christian faith. Because they don't want to yield their life to this one. They would rather go on creating a God in their own image and having their own step for God. Some of you are familiar with the movie Stepford Wives, right? where this, uh, this, this television uh, personality moves into, from New York City to Stepford, Connecticut. Uh, and as she settles in there with her husband, uh, she begins to n- observe some interesting things going on in the community. All the other wives in the community are perfect. Like the perfect, docile, like submissive, wives. Their hair is always perfect. Their makeup is always perfect. It's always yes sir, right? Everything their husband wishes, every whim of his, she yields to and submits to. And she's like, hold up a minute. Like, is this what it means to be a a, a woman in this community? Right? Well, what she comes to discover by the end of the book, which was was a book before it was a movie, but by the end of of the story, what she comes to discover is that these men had done away with their wives and created robots in their place who would do whatever they asked, whenever they asked, however they asked, wherever they asked. Right? And so, of course, these women were completely docile and submissive because these men had formed their wives in their own image. And there are many who do the same with God. They form Him in their own image. See, one of the ways to know whether or not you embrace the historicity of this Jesus, of knowing God truly and rightly, is that he contradicts you at times. There are things that you want that he says, that's not healthy for you. There are things that you do that he says, listen, that's going to destroy you. He, He can contradict you. Does your God contradict you? If not, you may not know God truly and rightly because there is a historicity to him. There's an objectiveness to the Christian faith. You cannot get around. Not only is knowing God historical, but it's also personal. It's also personal. Listen, we can't stop there and say that we just acknowledge there's a bunch of facts about this man who lived thousands of years ago. There are many who sit in very cold, stale places in their Christian faith 
not, not even knowing God, perhaps, because there is no personal encounter or experience that they've had with him. All they ascribe to is a certain set of facts and beliefs. And while those are necessary, see, because you can't encounter the true God apart from how he's revealed himself in history. But when you encounter him, you encounter him personally and experientially because knowing God is indeed personal. All the events, John says, of Jesus' birth, of his life, and his death were accomplished to bring us to God himself that we might enjoy fellowship with him, that we might know him personally. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. He says, for Christ also suffered once for all for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God that he might open the doorway of fellowship with God, that he might open the doorway of relationship with God. That is, so, so listen, if, if, if Christianity is just a set of historical facts to you and it is not personal, there's not fellowship with God, there is not intimacy with God, there's not enjoyment of God, there's not delight in God, there's not relationship to God, then your version of the Christian faith is it stands contrary to the purpose of Jesus' life and death that he might bring you to a place of relationship and fellowship with the one who made you. See, in verse, verses two and three, listen to what John says. He's, just, he's talked about proclaiming this eternal life to them. In verse two, and then in verse three, he says, the reason I'm testifying to this eternal life, the reason I'm proclaiming this eternal life to you is so that, verse three, you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now this eternal life that John's proclaiming, again, helpful to go back to the Gospel of John. In John chapter 17, you find Jesus praying a prayer for his followers before his crucifixion. It's called his high priestly prayer. And in John chapter 17, verse 3, listen to what Jesus prays for them. He says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now, John does, Jesus does not say in John 17, 3, and this is eternal, this, knowing God leads to eternal life. He doesn't say that. He says knowing God is eternal life. It's not something that you're waiting for to be inaugurated one day, but it starts now in the moment of your conversion, the moment in which God's Spirit quickens your heart to believe upon Christ, that eternal life starts for you then because what starts now in part will one day be culminated in all of its fullness, but it begins now. Eternal life, enjoyment of God, delight in God, fellowship with God, knowing God, knowing Him. It's a personal encounter, a personal experience And John says, this is the word of life that we're proclaiming to you. This is what we're telling you about life, that you haven't begun to live until you've encountered this one who is life. Life eternal. No matter what you think life consists of here on the earth, you haven't begun to live until you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. In Jeremiah chapter 9, I love, I love this, this text. In Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 24, God says through Jeremiah, He says, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands 
and knows me. That he knows me, Jeremiah says. Now, I want you to imagine that you were the, the, the wealthiest person on the face of the planet, right? So in your bank accounts, in your 401k, in your stock portfolio, you've got billions of dollars at your fingertips, right? That you could liquidate your savings, you could pull out money from your savings account and purchase any, like just your savings account, purchase any home on the face of the earth, right? You're, you're just exponentially wealthy, the richest person on the planet, right? For many of us, we think that is life. That it consists in the abundance of resources and possessions. Imagine that you're the greatest athlete on the face of the earth, the strongest person. Everything that you try, right? Whether it's cross, the CrossFit games, you're just crushing it, all right? All right, you go out to, you do, you do like 100-mile ultra marathons, and you just kill them, right? You just come in hours ahead of, of, uh, in front of everyone else who's behind you. Every athletic, uh, 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 every, every sport that you try, you just, you're like MVP, all-star, like World Series MVP, Super Bowl MVP. You're the greatest athlete on the face of the earth. And many of us would look at that and go, that is life. That's life. That's good. Imagine you were the smartest person on the face of the earth. You had just wisdom and knowledge. You could create anything. You could make anything. You could solve any problem. And people look to you. You had influence in their lives because they came to you to say, make this, fix this. You would say, that is life. Feel needed and accepted and loved by others. And what God is saying through Jeremiah, he says, none of that is life. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, the strong man boast in his strength, the rich man boast in his riches, but he who boasts, he who glories in something, he who finds life, Let it be in the fact that he knows me, understands me, has fellowship with me, as John would say. That his fellowship was with the Father and the Son. Listen, you have not begun to live. If you think that life consists of the abundance of possessions, the abundance of positions, the abundance of promotions, the abundance of influence, the abundance of riches, the abundance of power, if you think that life consists of all those things, what you're enjoying is a two-watt nightlight compared to the radiance of the sun. That's what John is saying. That knowing God is not only historical, but it's personal. That you have fellowship with Him. You know what that word fellowship means? It means to share something in common. To share things in common. And so what it, the, the Puritans used to say, we shared three things in common with God. His life, his interest, and his in communication. His life, first of all. His life, the very life of God comes into us. That Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, that we become partakers of the divine nature according to God's very great and precious promises. That, that, that listen, okay, I gotta say this in our day and time that we don't that the Trinity doesn't become a, the Trinity doesn't become a square, okay? You know what I'm saying? We don't become the fourth leg of the Trinity, okay? And so God remains distinct from us, okay? He doesn't turn into a square with us, kind of as that fourth leg on the end. It's not what we're saying, but what we're saying is that the communicable attributes of God, right? His love, His justice, His kindness, His goodness, those things begin manifest in our life. His divine nature begins to show itself 
through us. Again, C.S. Lewis says it brilliantly this way when he says, he will make the feeblest of us and the filthiest of us into dazzling, radiant, immortal creatures, pulsating all through with such energy, joy, wisdom, and love as we cannot now imagine a bright, stainless mirror that reflects back to God, though of course in a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. That is what we are in for, nothing less. That you become a partaker of the divine nature, the very life of God, is now coursing through you. But second of all, the interest of God, because the mind of Christ begins to grow in you. The mind of Christ begins to grow, and we begin to see things differently as His priorities now become our priorities, and we see life through His lenses. See, one of the ways to know the difference between a religious person and someone who knows God because there's a difference. See, a religious person and someone who knows God is this, is that a religious person, in moments of crisis, they will bring God in. When things get critical, right? When the, when the nuclear reactor is about to melt down in their life, right? They bring God in. But someone who knows God, they put God on in the midst of all of their situations, whether it be critical or not. And they begin to see things through his lenses. Uh, let me try to illustrate to you this way. I, I've been married for 17 years. <laughs> right? And over the course of those 17 years, one of the things that I have observed, my wife has observed, um, by the way, she's made me a much, much better man than I've made her a better woman. I'll just go ahead and say that. But um, one of the things that you notice, the longer that you spend time with someone, the longer you have fellowship with someone, the longer you have interests, share things in common with someone, is that as you, you're watching a television show, you're watching a movie, you see a news report, you have a conversation, you see something out in the community, and, all, all, and, and the, 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 as you share fellowship with your spouse, one of the things that begins to happen is that their mind, to some degree, begins to kind of transport into your mind. And you begin to know how they think. You begin to know what they think. And so you begin to know how they would respond or how they would react or what they would say in a particular setting or in a particular situation. Right? You begin to, you begin to observe those things about them. Right? And this, listen, the same is true except on a much grander scale with God. So that as we share fellowship with Him, as we know Him personally, as we interact with Him, what happens is this. Is it the things that used to once make us, that, that, that there are some things at times that we used to delight in that now disgust us. There are some things that we used to delight in in part that are good things that we now delight in in fullness because we know they're just a gift from the one who gave it. And so the delight goes up to him and not just stays with that thing. Right? There, there are things that used to make us sad that now break our hearts. They crush us. Because there's, listen, Christians have the deepest and highest joys, but also the deepest and lowest sadnesses. Because they see light and darkness. They see sin and grace. They understand the fallen world in which we live and that God's coming to redeem it. They begin to see things through those lenses. They begin to see people through those lenses. They begin to see individuals through those lenses. They begin to see societies through those lenses. As we share His interest as we walk with him. So you begin to see all those things because the longer you know God, the more you begin to see things through his eyes, not just your own. 
But third, we also share with him communication. Communication, listen church, is a two-way street, isn't it? It's the exchange of ideas, information, feelings, thoughts. But it goes both ways, doesn't it? And so we commune with God, we communicate with God through prayer. Through prayer. So that's our approach to God is through prayer. And listen, one of the ways that you know God personally, that it's not just a set of historical facts that you ascribe to, that you're not just a religious person, but you actually know God personally is this, is that you delight to spend time with the one who has loved you. Not just bringing your laundry list to him of all the things that you want him to do. Right? So you, you don't just kind of write, write out a prayer list and go, okay, God, I need you to do this and this and this. And if, it, if you could get it done by Thursday, that'd be really helpful. Right? But you delight to spend God with time with God because of who he is personally. Right? You're captivated by him. And so you're no longer wrestling with like, does prayer work? Right? That's what all the, 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 the commentators want to ask or the, 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 the media wants to ask. Does prayer really work? That's not the question for somebody who knows God personally. Is that prayer is my opportunity to commune with God, to share with him, to pour my heart out before him, to tell him where I'm at, to communicate with him. And then, conversely, you know God personally. He communicates with you. And listen, so often, so often, not exclusively, but so often this takes place through His Word. It's a normative way that it happens. And here's how it normally takes place, is that His Word begins to catch fire in you. You ever had that experience? Those of you who've had it, you know what I'm talking about. As you read a passage of Scripture, and maybe you're going through a particular challenge or situation, or having to make a particular decision, and as you're reading a particular text of Scripture, it's like that that, that text just jumps off the page, it catches fire, it becomes radioactive in your life. And like you can't escape it for a week. That same, like those same five words just continue, or those, that same verse, or that same paragraph just continues to resound over and over and over and over and over again in your mind and in your heart. As God is shedding his love abroad in you, as John will say elsewhere in First John. As he communicates to you through your word. So knowing God is personal as well. And finally, on the, uh, listen, let me say it to you. Knowing God is joyful. And the joy is rooted in the personal and historical. You don't get the joy if Jesus is not who he says he is and if you don't have personal interaction with him. But it's joyful. In verse four, John says, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now the R in verse 4, I think, is a collective R. What do you mean by that, Shannon? This is what I mean. I think John is saying this. That he's saying, I'm, what I'm aiming at is both my joy and your joy. Because I want you to have fellowship with us, speaking of him and the ap apostolic witnesses. But I also want you to have fellowship with the Father and the Son, the same fellowship that we share. And I want that joy to be complete. That word complete literally means to fill up or to make full. Now, you, you might argue, well, listen, this side of heaven, in this life, full, complete, absolute joy will always elude us. And I would agree with you on that. 
But there is a fullness and a completeness of joy that we can experience in this life. And here's what it is. It's the joy that not only comes down, but comes up. I'm trying to illustrate to you this way. Listen, if I were to, if, if, if I were to try, if I, if I owned a big farmhouse out on 40 acres of land and I had uh, a big, big stock tank out in the back that I drew water off of and filtered it and used to bathe and drink in my home. Listen, when drought hits, those stock tanks are not very deep. All right? And when, a dr- when an extended season of drought hits, what's going to eventually happen when the rain stops falling from above is that stock tank is going to dry up. If that drought is long enough, if it's sustained long enough, that stock tank is going to dry up. But if, if I drill down deeply into subterranean sources of water below the surface and I tap into a well that captures and collects all the rainwater as it falls down through the earth and it filters down into that well and I draw it up from there, then no matter where the drought hits or how long it's, it, it lasts, that well will continue to provide because when the rain stops, when the water stops coming down from above, it still comes up from beneath. Are you with me? Right? So there's a difference between those two types of joy. See, most of our joy is dependent upon external circumstances, the rain coming down from above. But there's a fullness of joy, a completeness of joy in this life, even whenever the heavens turn as bronze as the Old Testament speaks of. And the rain stops falling. And we enter into hardships and we enter into difficulties. We enter into stressors in our life. And when the rain stops falling from above, there's still water coming up from beneath. Because there's a subterranean source of joy that's rooted, not in our external circumstances, but in our fellowship with God himself. This one who's revealed himself in human history. Knowing God is joyful. Is there a joy in your life? Look, I, I, have, I have to, is there a joy in my life that transcends your external circumstances? Not to say that you don't weep in the midst of sorrow and hardship and pain, because you do. But is there rising up at the same time from beneath this water that is life-giving? and allows you to rejoice even in your sorrows. Knowing God is historical, it is personal, and it is joyful. And listen, church, as we close this morning, I want to tell you something. This is why we are here. This is why we exist as a church. I want you to know that. Look, there are many people who look around the landscape of Rockwall County and they say, why another church? <laughs> Meeting in a daycare. Right? Aren't there already enough churches and bigger churches and more, more established churches? Yes, there are lots of churches. But listen, we exist as a church. I hope, I hope what we said this morning is impactful to you personally but listen I want you to tell you something corporately we exist at the church to report the facts of history and we exist as a church to lead people in the rejoicing and fellowship with God that's why we're here right now listen I can give you all kinds of statistics but what I want to tell you is this you know it from seeing it 
there is exponential growth in this community. It's undeniable. In 2000, there were 602 people who lived in fate. Think about that for a moment. 602. Now there's over 15,000 in the city of fate. Royce City is growing exponentially. Toward the south is growing. Toward the north is growing. Toward the east is growing. Hunt County, Collin, God is what, what are we, God is bringing people here. You can attribute it to economics. You can attribute it to the cost of living. You can attribute it to all kinds of things. But God is bringing people here. And the largest church in our community that's around 9,000 strong on a Sunday morning, in order to reach Rockwall County with this reporting of the facts and leading people to rejoice in fellowship, would take 10 of those churches today. And in 15 years, it would take 20 of those churches. And what that means for us today is that there needs to be more and more churches that are rising up that are reporting the fact and leading people to rejoice in fellowship with the Father and the Son. That are sharing the gospel, that are shaping disciples, and that are sending missionaries into our neighborhoods and across the globe. So that they too might know the joy of this Jesus who was born into human history. Became the center and fulcrum of everything that has ever existed and ever will exist. And did so to bring us and them to God. That's why we're here. That's why we're going to celebrate faith next week. So I hope you'll join us. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we thank you we come with hearts filled with gratitude for the very truths that your word captivate our hearts with. That through your word, you captivate us. We thank you for the joy that bubbles up from beneath. This complete joy, this full joy, even in the midst of sorrows and challenges. We thank you for the fact that we're, that joy comes from a personal intimacy with the infinite that that's what you promise that we as your creatures could have the intimacy with you as our creator your son came to bring us to you that we might share you in your life we might share in your interest we might share in communication with you as we pour our hearts out to you and as you speak truth and comfort and conviction and encouragement and peace to ours through your word and all this is made possible because your son broke into human history. And our predecessors, the, our forerunners, the apostles, they saw him. They heard him. They touched him. Not only in the 30 some odd years that he lived on this earth, but also in those days following his resurrection prior to his ascension. We thank you that you made it possible for us to know you. And we pray that because of our presence here, many more would come to know you. God, help us in the months ahead to discern whether we know you. I pray you would bring great comfort and assurance to many as we look at these evidences of true faith. 
God, I pray on the other hand, if there's not true faith, I pray that you would conflict others, leading them to a place of repentance and trust. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.